Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. We're going to do something a little different for this episode. While it will tangentially be about movies, this one's going to be about music, specifically one of the best and most unique of 1980s music labels. In the late 1970s, as punk and new wave caught fire on both sides of the Atlantic, Miles Copeland III was front and center of the action. His older brother Ian was the head of Frontier Booking International, or FBI, who booked many of the hottest punk and new wave bands on both sides of the Atlantic, including the police. Another brother, Stuart, was the drummer for the police. Miles had been acting as the manager of the police, as well as an agent, producer, and magazine publisher. The Police's first album, Outlandos d'Amour, was released on a and Records in 1978. Its success was driven by the hit single Roxanne. Miles Copeland, seeing a new opportunity thanks to the success of his brother's band, would convince Jerry Moss, the M of a and Records, in 1979 that it was time to establish a new record label that would focus on the burgeoning music revolution. Taking a cue from Brother Ian's booking company's name, Miles would call the new outfit International Records Syndicate, or IRS Records. I guess I should mention at this point that Miles Copeland Jr., the father of Ian, Stewart, and Miles, was a founding member of both the Office of Strategic Services and its superseding agency, the Central Intelligence Agency which is why his children loved naming their bands and their companies after authoritative agencies. Now, A&M Records would actually have no ownership in IRS. A&M's role in the agreement was for A&M to promote IRS records to radio and retail, and to also provide office space and free postage to the upstart label, and share the costs of record manufacturing. While IRS would do its own marketing and advertising, A&M had the option of adding marketing money to specific records that were selling well in return for royalties in A&M's favor. The first record to be released by IRS Records, IR9001, was the Buzzcocks single Everybody's Happy Nowadays, which came out on September 28, 1979. By 1980, IRS Records would have signed The Beat, or in the United States, because there was already a band called The Beat in the States, The English Beat, plus Berlin, Velvet Underground founding member John Cale, The Cramps, The Damned, Dead Kennedys, and Oingo Boingo. Now, some of those deal points I mentioned earlier would become important because sometimes A&M and IRS would have a dispute over a specific product. Part of the A&M-IRS agreement was that A&M could elect not to promote IRS products. A&M passed on the Dead Kennedys album Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables and their lead single Holiday in Cambodia because they felt the band, the album, and that specific song were all in poor taste. So Copeland would found another label, Faulty Records, in order to handle distribution for the Dead Kennedys. In 1981... IRS would have their first big success when they would release the Go-Go's first album, Beauty and the Beat. While the band might not have had much faith in Copeland, with bassist Kathy Valentine musing years later that IRS 
was where you went when you couldn't get a deal with any real label, Copeland had great faith in them. He would sign the Go-Go's to IRS Records on April 1st, 1981, and have their debut album recorded and in stores a little more than three months later. That album, Beauty and the Beat, would go double platinum and feature two massive hits in We Got the Beat and Our Lips Are Sealed. While those two pop ditties are infectious ear candy, the two best songs on the album remain the two that close out side A, Lust to Love and This Town. The Go-Go's would also be a part of musical history when Totally Go-Go's, filmed in 1981 during a concert to support their first album, became the first commercially available music videotape. The Go-Go's would also claim the distinction of being the first all-female band to have a number one album on the Billboard pop charts, and they would be the only artists from IRS to ever be nominated for a Grammy, which they were nominated for twice in 1981 as the Best New Artist, and in 1982 when their album Vacation was nominated in the Best Album Package category. 1981 would also see the debut release from Wall of Voodoo, as well as the debut album from Let's Active. Let's Active wasn't a very successful band, but it would be singer and guitarist Mitch Easter's association with another band, that would be quite important for the label's long-term success. 1982 would see the debut release of that other band, a five-song EP or extended play record. An EP was often a four- to six-track set of songs that would either introduce a new band without the worry of coming up with a full album's worth of material or something to keep fans happy between full albums. The Beatles were one of the early pioneers of the EP format. This EP, R.E.M.'s Chronic Town, would not feature their southern regional hit Radio Free Europe, produced by Mitch Easter, which would be re-recorded for inclusion with their first full album, Murmur, which would arrive in stores the following year and become their first national hit. Wall of Voodoo would see the release of Call of the Wild, which featured their big song, Mexican Radio. Okay, Havens, you might be asking me, when are you going to start talking about movies? Well, right now. What is this place? It's the rhythm I need! Suppose they gave a music war. I need this! And everybody came. 
Four bands, and we'll never play the prom. Thirty-five score, and you'll never hear in an elevator. nineteen eighty two would see the release of Erg, a music war, one of a series of music documentaries that sought to record the burgeoning punk and new wave movements that were happening on both sides of the Atlantic. Penelope Spheris's The Decline of Western Civilization may have beaten Erg to theaters by almost a year, but Spheris's film was as much about capturing the lives of the young musicians in Los Angeles, like Darby Crash of the Germs and John Doe and Exine Cervenka of X, as it was about their music. Erg was a Northern Hemisphere travelogue that focuses solely on the music. We don't get to know the members of OMD or Klaus Nomi. We just get to experience their musical performances in a live setting. The movie was financed by Miles Copeland and featured no less than nine artists signed to IRS Records at the time of filming. Chelsea, The Cramps, The Flesh Tones, The Go-Go's, Jules Holland, Magazine, Oingo Boingo, Scoffish, and Wall of Voodoo. Plus, of course, The Police, whom Copeland was still managing. However, the soundtrack album, a 27-song double album, was released on A&M Records in large part because... They were the home label for inarguably the biggest band in the film and on the soundtrack, The Police. You can buy the movie on DVD right now from the Warner Brothers Archive Collection. 1982 would also see the label becoming more intertwined with MTV. IRS label mate Jules Holland hosted a one-time special in the fall of 1982 called The IRS Show, 
where Holland interviewed members of the Go-Go's and Wall of Voodoo, as well as Danny Elfman. That special would become the pilot for IRS Records Presents the Cutting Edge, which ran on the last Sunday of each month from April 17, 1983 to September 27, 1987, and was hosted by Peter Zaremba of the Flesh Tones. The Cutting Edge concentrated on bands that recorded for the label, but would also present interviews and performances with the likes of Alex Chilton, Robin Hitchcock, Jonathan Richman, and Tom Waits, and would see the first MTV exposure for artists like Madonna, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and R.E.M. The show's concept would later germinate into 120 Minutes, which launched on March 10, 1986, and would coexist with Cutting Edge for about a year and a half. You can see the IRS show and portions of episodes of The Cutting Edge on YouTube. Also in 1982, IRS would introduce the Kasingle to America with a retail price of $2.98. The first Kasingle to be test marketed was Vacation by The Go-Go's, which first went on sale in Atlanta. And if that wasn't enough, IRS also released their first actual movie soundtrack in 1982, the score to David Lynch's first movie, Eraserhead. 1983 was another good year for IRS Records. In addition to R.E.M.'s first full-length LP, the label also put out the first single and first EP from The Alarm, the debut EP from another female rock group from Los Angeles, Bangles, and the final release by The Beat before they split into two other bands, Fine Young Cannibals and General Public, both of whom were signed to IRS. 1984 would see the first full-length albums by General Public and The Alarm, as well as the last album by The Go-Go's. IRS would also release the soundtrack to the movie Bachelor Party, which was basically a sampler for the label, featuring new songs from The Alarm, The Flesh Tones, Jules Holland, and Oingo Boingo, who had already left IRS for MCA Records back in 1982, plus an R.E.M. song recorded for their second album, Reckoning, but was left off the final release, as well as a new Darlene Love song, and contributions from two indie bands not yet signed to IRS at the time of the soundtrack's release, Angel and the Reruns, and Yip Yip Coyote. And if that wasn't enough, Adrian Zamed, the movie's sexy co-star, and I am doing air quotes as I say sexy here, tries to straddle the line between Danny Elfman and Corey Hart with his song Little Demons. The song is not good, his vocals are even worse, and Zamed would never release another song again. really only worth checking out if you're an absolute completionist for The Alarm, Boingo, and or R.E.M. Looking to expand their footprint in Japan, the label teamed with the legendary Los Angeles new wave radio station KROQ to release the sampler album KROQ Presents the Normal Noise of IRS, 
This 10-song sampler included The Alarm, Go-Go's, and R.E.M., and lesser-known groups like Raise the Dragon and Yip Yip Coyote, who was finally signed to IRS after the release of the Bachelor Party soundtrack. But with only one song that could be deemed a hit, Head Over Heels by the Go-Go's, the album did not do very well in the land of the rising sun. Even today, copies of this album sell for less than $7. 1985 would be a rather quiet year for the label. The third R.E.M. album, Fables of the Reconstruction, was not met with the same glorious reviews of the previous two albums, although it still sold fairly well. And frankly, it's my favorite of their IRS records. Fine Young Cannibals would release their first album this year, as would Stan Ridgway, the former lead singer of Wall of Voodoo, unleashing his amazing first solo album, the Big Heat. Nineteen eighty-five would also see the label move its distribution from A and M Records to MCA Records, in a deal that would give IRS a bigger piece of the pie in terms of profit participation but would allow A&M Records to continue releasing the pre-1985 catalog. 1986 would be one of IRS's best years. The Go-Go's may have broken up the year before, and guitarist Jane Weedland may have released her first solo album the year before, but it would be Go-Go's lead singer Belinda Carlisle who found herself with one of the most successful albums for the label. Her eponymous debut solo album, Belinda would spawn the number three single, Mad About You, and would lay the groundwork for her even more successful second album, Heaven on Earth, released the following year. However, Carlisle would leave IRS for MCA after the release of Belinda, and the label would not enjoy the biggest success of one of their most popular artists. Timbuk3, the quirky husband and wife duo of Pat McDonald and Barbara McDonald, would see their first album, Greetings from Timbuk3, released in 1986. The album would feature their top 20 hit, The Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades, while two other songs, Life is Hard and Shame on You, would be featured in Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel and its soundtrack, which was also released by IRS. IRS would also release the soundtrack album for the Anthony Michael Hall movie, Out of Bounds, which featured a score by Stuart Copeland and song by IRS label mates Lords of the New Church, The American Girls, and Belinda Carlisle, as well as a song by Night Ranger, Wild and Innocent Youth, that has never been released outside of this long out-of-print album. For good reason. And don't worry, I've already stabbed you with Adrian Zemed. I'm not going to shiv you a second time with Night Ranger. 1987 would see the start of the end for IRS Records. In addition to losing the Go-Go's, their biggest selling group, and then its lead singer, Belinda Carlisle, the label would lose R.E.M. to Warner Brothers after the release of Document, their fifth album for the label. Document would see the band have its first platinum-certified album and two of their biggest hits of the decade in The One I Love and It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. 
IRS would also release an REM compilation album, Dead Letter Office, a few months before Document, which would collect various B-sides and soundtrack offerings. REM fans who didn't collect 45s would learn the band's affinity for the Velvet Underground and, like the replacements, recording while very, very, very drunk. Also in 1987, The Alarm's attempt to become the Welsh U2, Eye of the Hurricane, would produce two of the band's greatest songs in Rain in the Summertime and Rescue Me, but the album would not produce U2-level sales. Rescue Me would find an audience outside of the Core Alarm fan base when it was included on the soundtrack to the hot new TV show 21 Jump Street, which, incidentally, was released by IRS and was also packed to the gills with IRS artists. The rest of the decade would find very little success with their continuing acts like the DBs, Doctor and the Medics, and my personal favorites, Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper, and most of the quote new unquote content from IRS would actually be compilation albums and CD reissues from the pre-1985 IRS catalog controlled by A&M Records. IRS proper would put out new albums by artists long past their career apex like Black Sabbath, Gary Newman, Tom Verlaine, and Robbie Krieger of The Doors, as well as solo albums from former Beat and General Public singers Dave Winkling and Ranking Roger. But IRS would only have one more successful album in the decade when the Fine Young Cannibal's second and final album, The Raw and the Cooked, hit record stores in January 1989. Although one of the album's more popular songs, Ever Fallen in Love, had been included on the soundtrack to Jonathan Demme's 1986 movie, Something Wild, more than two years earlier. The album would top the charts and be certified double platinum in the United States, and would go on to sell more than three million copies worldwide, buoyed by two number one hit songs, She Drives Me Crazy and Good Thing. IRS would have one final surprise success in 1990 when Concrete Blonde's Joey became an unexpected top 20 hit. The label itself would cease proper operations at the end of May 1996, with its last release being, ironically, all set by the Buzzcocks, issued two weeks before the label's closure. Miles and Stuart Copeland would go on to found ARC-21 Records in 1997, featuring artists as diverse as Belinda Carlisle, The Human League, Waylon Jennings, and Black Velvet singer Alana Miles, but ARC-21 would never find any kind of success they had with IRS, and that label would go dark in 2006. Through a series of buyouts and mergers, Universal Music Group, became the owners of IRS Records' name in the early 2010s, and they tried to revive the label as IRS Nashville in 2013, 
but that brief interlude would disappear within two years. You can still find the IRS Records logo on re-releases of their biggest band's albums and greatest hit collections, but it's unlikely we'll ever see a record label like them again. Well, maybe we already have in Jack White and his Third Man Records. They're probably could be considered a spiritual successor to IRS. Now, I know this episode didn't get too much into 80s movies. I just thought it would be fun to play DJ for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about this show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at Filmjerk. The Filmjerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Oh,